Hey everyone, it's Adam Farkas along with Paul Farkas. Hi everyone. And welcome to another edition of ODY Radio. And today, Paul, we, it's not often that we can say that we actually have a living legend on the show, but actually today we do. So today we have uh, Dr. Norman Hafner as our guest. And, you know, Paul and Norman go back a long, long, long way. How many decades would you say, Paul? Uh, how about 50 years or more? Good Lord. So, Paul, I think then it's probably appropriate for you to make the, the introduction. Wow. Well, you know, I, I have... Uh, wow was not part of the introduction. <laughs> I, I, have, I have the uh, Norman's, uh, Dr. Hafner's uh, bio here, and it takes up uh, too many pages. It would take the whole hour. So it's going to be a very brief introduction. Uh, for those of you that do not know Dr. Norman Hafner... Uh, he was the president of SUNY. I say that because he was there for many, many years. However, what's more important, uh, during the second half of the 20th century, Dr. Norman Hafner was responsible for more ideas and, and more movements in the organized optometry and in education than any other single person that I can think of. Anyone that is in education today or optometric leaders today must stand on the shoulders of Dr. Norman Hafner. Well, I'm very flattered by well, with, those with that. comments, but I think they're a little extreme. <laughs> well, I, we, shall, we shall talk more uh, during this interview. Well, and why don't you let your uh, the people who are listening to this make their own judgment? Okay, okay. With that said, Ad, you have the first question for Dr. Hafner. I do, and my first question is this. So how do you view optometry from it in a historical perspective? That's an important question. Optometry was founded legally in 1901 when the state of Minnesota was the first state in the nation that legally recognized the profession and established the rights within which the profession could be practiced in the state of Minnesota. The last, um, uh, the last state to recognize uh, optometry was 1924, and that was the District of Columbia. From 1901 to 1924, optometry was born, state after state after state. And historically, I view, to be more precise, in answer to your question, I view optometry from its legal beginnings. That is, the times that each of the states recognized the existence of the profession and defined its obligations, responsibilities, and entitlements. Right. Well, so, uh, so that's going to move us into 1956 when one of the crown jewels of optometric education closed their doors, Columbia University decided that optomet the optometry program was no longer needed. Uh, can you tell us something about uh, the background of what happened there? Well, why did Columbia just dump optometry? Well, I was not a graduate of Columbia, as you already know. I'm a graduate of Pennsylvania College of Optometry, now part of Salus University. But I was a very keen observer 
And given the role that I undertook as the director of the Optometric Center of New York, this little clinic that was established after Columbia closed, um, I was a keen observer to the toing and froing that resulted from the closure of Columbia. Uh, Paul, Paul and Adam, I think all our readers should, or listeners, should recognize the fact that though Columbia did not offer a doctorate at the time that it closed, its terminal degree was a Master of Optometry degree, it was the only Ivy League institution that optometry has ever had. No other Ivy League institution established an optometry program, not before and not since the closing of Columbia. I will tell you two anecdotal stories that are emblematic of the the terrible tragedy, I view it as such, uh, of the closing of Columbia. Professor Isidore Finkelstein was a senior professor at Columbia. He lived in the Bronx. He traveled to Lincoln Center, which is where the final optometry program resided on East 60th Street, West 60th Street, excuse me. And he was reading his New York Times on the train. And he suddenly came across a major article that said that Columbia was discontinuing the optometry program. The faculty had never been uh, notified in advance that this was going to take place. Neither were the students. They learned about it from the press. Wow. That's an awful, awful way to, to of behavior. But it's also emblematic of, uh, of the bitterness had already existed in the university. They wanted to get rid of this optometry program, and indeed, they did. Well, I, I, I will. Uh, Paul, excuse me a minute. Yeah. I will relate one other story. I said there are two stories to show the bitterness. One day, three weeks into my tenure at the Optometric Center of New York, I got a call from a a person who managed uh, a warehouse for Columbia up in Morningside Heights. And I said, to what do I owe the honor of this call, sir? And he said, we've been rummaging through some of the effects of the optometry program and have thrown out most of the stuff. But we came across a painting uh, 
painting of Dr. James P.C. Southall, the great opticist uh, who taught at Columbia and whose legendary book, Mirrors, Lenses, and Prison, uh, is a hallmark of our history. They were going to throw out the painting. I said, please don't do that. I'll jump into a cab and I'll come up to Morningside Heights. I want that painting. I went up there. I secured the painting. And while there, I was able to look around to see what else they had. And there was the painting of Dr. Isidore Finkelstein, not identified with optometry, but they were going to throw that out too. I said, may I have this painting too? It goes with the other. And I went back in the cab with both paintings uh, to the Optometric Center of New York. Both paintings still sit in the college. They hang on, I hope, respected and admired walls of the college. These are our forefathers. When I got back and days later, I showed Is Finkelstein his painting. And this, is, this was a grown and mature man who broke down into tears. He, he said, I thought it was lost. I said, well, Is, it was not lost. And it'll remain with the institution for a very, very long time. Yeah, speaking of the Optometric Center, uh, it... It became the, the, the child of the optometry clinic at Columbia. Uh, I assume uh, the... No, no, let me, not? Let, me, okay. let me clarify that for you. When Columbia announced that it was closing the program in June of 1956, a group of very interested optometrists uh, headed by Dr. William Feinblum uh, Dr. Uh, Dan Wolf, Daniel Wolf, Dr. Um, Max Cohen, uh, and Dr. Fred Brock. Those are stellar names in optometry. They said, let's put a little clinic together to try and salvage at least a segment of the program. They took a loft uh, in a dinky old uh, loft building on 36th Street. It was 11 West 36th Street. And they established the Optometric Center of New York. And that's that's how, it, how it got started. Wow. And then uh, the Optometric Center st stayed in existence until uh, SUNY Optometry came into existence, I assume. Is that correct? When SUNY Optometry came into existence, when the college was founded by State University as a result of uh, legislative authorization, uh, the clinics were turned over to the college, and the name and charter of the Optometric Center of New York became the charter of the foundation for the college. It's the campus-related foundation 
to raise monies for philanthropic scholarship, fellowship, and other kinds of campus-related activities that a philanthropic foundation can do. So the Optometric Center of New York, founded in 1956, April 15, 1956, and later chartered by the Board of Regents of New York State, is the campus-related foundation of the SUNY College of Optometry to this day. And it's had a brilliant, absolutely successful history. Right. And parallel to all this going on in New York, uh, there was a movement in optometry. Up up until that time, there was a slogan by most optometrists and and to the legislator saying, uh, a lens is not a pill. And optometry proudly uh, indicated that they were a drugless profession. But some uh, individuals in optometry felt that it was necessary uh, to move on and optometry as a, a doctoral program should have the use of form, uh, therapeutic, uh, diagnostic and therapeutic drugs. Uh, so can, can you move on to what happened at a meeting in LaGuardia Airport? Well, let me just correct something you just said. The lens is not a pill was an issue in the Pennsylvania legislature and with the Pennsylvania Optometric Association in order to break free from the supervision of organized medicine. Medicine dominated the pill. The lens was not a pill, and therefore the reasoning was that optometry should not be dominated by a medical board or by the profession of medicine. It had its own history, its own standing, and its own future. Now, LaGuardia. That is a a wonderful story, and one that ended and uh, successfully for the profession that's regarded Sir Bennett uh, is a person who says that it's the meeting that changed the future of the profession. And I'm very proud of the fact that I was part of it, even an integral part of it. I managed the meeting. I set it up at uh, one of the motels at LaGuardia Airport. Um, The meeting took up the single most important issue that I think the profession faced at that time. And that was, should the profession remain within the confines of its original legal jurisdictions, or should it expand and make use of diagnostic and even therapeutic drugs for the treatment of eye problems. And that, of course, would have meant a major expansion of the profession. But, Paul, uh, let me make one observation, which I try to make all the time when I'm asked this question. When optometry was first recognized legally, 
in the state of Minnesota, all you needed was two years after high school. Two years. By the time LaGuardia, the LaGuardia meeting came about, optometrists were required to have at least three years in college, undergraduate college, and most people came in with a baccalaureate degree. So we had gone from one or two years of preparation to almost four years of preparation, plus four years of optometry school. We had gone from a small amount of training to almost eight years. And yet, the professional and legally recognized responsibilities of the optometrist were exactly the same as they were in 1901. Now, that was a tremendous imbalance. We were now requiring eight, up to eight years of training, four years undergraduate, four years in professional school, in order to graduate and become an optometrist. Yet the role and responsibility of the optometrist legally had not changed, essentially, since 1901. That was an enormous imbalance. And we had a choice, in my respectful opinion. We had a choice in the profession. We could either cut back and reduce the extent of time, and nobody chose that. Uh, route, and I certainly didn't advocate for it, or we could turn around and say, we now have a profession that requires eight years of education and training, and therefore the role and responsibility of the profession should be altered, expanded, and certainly for the good of the public, always with the good of the public in mind. So I viewed the LaGuardia Conference as a means to re-stabilize the profession from its preparation to its role responsibility. In a strange way, Paul, we're at the same precipice now. We can either move ahead or we're going to be stuck with what we have. And that, in my respectful opinion, is not stable or may not be stable. Now, one of we'll the, talk about that yeah, more. One of the challenges uh, then and now is we had some uh, individuals that felt strongly about a movement. And uh, you had, uh, had, had organized optometry. Were they happy about this meeting, or did they feel that this group was usurping their responsibility? I think that the last statement is true, that um, I think there were people within the AOA who were very hesitant to move in this direction. Uh, optometrists were extremely successful, and everybody knew that moving in this direction would distress and disturb the medical community, and it did. It certainly did, but uh, it was
was necessary to do for the public's benefit and for our benefit. Nothing that we recommended, Paul, absolutely nothing that we recommended was not in the public interest. It was all in the public interest. That's the way it was projected. That's the way it was sold to the profession. That's the way the legislatures throughout the country recognized and understood it. And, and, we, and we had a, an aggressive leadership, a leadership uh, that was willing to take a chance. They weren't always interested in this antitrust uh, fear. Uh, was Harold Cohn the, the legal head at Harold that time? Harold Cohn was the legal counsel to the AOA. Harold Cohen uh, also was the legal counsel to the Optometric Center of New York. Yeah, and he was a tough I lawyer. I knew Harold well and yep. admired and uh, just adored the work that he did. He was, uh, in many ways, uh, my godfather, uh, and I uh, respect his memory. I delivered the eulogy. The family asked me to deliver the eulogy at his funeral, and that funeral was jammed jam-packed with people who knew him, who respected him. They came in from all over the United States to attend that. And uh, I delivered that eulogy. Uh, It's published somewhere by the NYSOA. You can look it up. Right. So, excuse me. So, so Norman, pushing forward into uh, 2013, Healthcare is at this point changing very rapidly. You have healthcare reform, so-called Obamacare. What sort of pressures do you see on optometry in the current uh, healthcare landscape? Well, there's no question that we have two systems of change currently going on. And let me explain what I mean by two systems of change. You have the overall environment within which healthcare is delivered, paid for, organized, and follows regulations. That's the overall system. And then you have, within that system, optometry itself, which is changing. We already have uh, two or three different kinds of optometry. You have optometry in the state of Minnesota, excuse me, in the state of Oklahoma, uh, in the state of Kentucky, Uh, which uh, authorize and permit optometrists to use lasers, uh, laser surgery uh, on a limited basis. And indeed, there are other states that will probably move in that direction. Now, uh, there are some states still angling to get the uh, opportunity to treat glaucoma as in Massachusetts. So there are states behind the current situation. There are states in front of the situation. But that's what progress is all about. It's never clean and easy. It's all always uh, with a great deal of difficulty, uh, both externally and certainly within the protest. You know, uh, Norman, you spent uh, your entire career 
in higher and professional education and, it, and its institutions. How do you view the uh, future direction of, of these institutions? Well, let me first uh, say that I admire the institutions of longstanding. I call them our heritage institutions. The New England College, the Pennsylvania College of Optometry, the Southern College of Optometry, Southern California, and the Illinois College of Optometry. Those five are our heritage institutions. But even they are facing uh, very substantial pressures. Some have decided to convert into a university. Some have decided to advance programs outside of optometry. Where this goes, I, I will not make a judgment. However, let me make this comment, Paul. I am, ex I am concerned in the extreme with the profusion of new schools, some of which have, should never have been recognized. There's one school that I uh, absolutely define as a public embarrassment to the profession. And I don't think you can view it any other way. Please understand that uh, three institutions affiliated with academic osteopathic medicine have come forward with new schools. One, is the old Southeastern University of the Health Sciences before it merged with Nova University. That seems to be a well-established and properly functioning optometry program. We have uh, the school in, uh, at Western University of the Health Sciences, um, in California, and that seems to be operating well, although it's a very new school. It's less than five years old. And we have the school in Arizona, which is sponsored by an osteopathic academic center out of Illinois, which, by the way, has also uh, made rumblings that it's going to establish another school of optometry or another college of optometry in North Chicago. Uh, and that will be an interesting thing to watch given the presence of the Illinois College of Optometry in South Chicago. So uh, osteopathy, academic osteopathy, has made quite a move in our profession. But you have this school that is being proposed in rural Virginia. You have this school that came about uh, as part of a pharmacy university in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. You have the school that was established by a religiously related university, the University of the Incarnate Word. Um, and uh, those schools are, at best, 
fragile. Uh, what is being proposed is certainly more fragile. And come to the point, come to the point, Paul, my greatest fear for academic optometry is that we're involved in a slow drift away from professional education and toward vocational education. And there's quite a difference. Right. Coming, coming back, we could almost... And the optometrists who are listening to this program and the optometric leaders throughout the country, all of whom are my honored colleagues, had better understand the differences and wake up because uh, the drift toward vocational education is not in the public interest and it's not in optometry's professional interest. So is there anything, any lesson that we can learn from Columbia's closing uh, that could uh, be brought to, to bear on the excess of schools and the lack of uh, new well, applicants. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You said excess of schools. We're still waiting for the AOA-authorized uh, workforce study. It's currently underway. Um, I think it should have been done long before this, but at the moment we don't know whether we have a surplus of optometrists, whether we will project a surplus of optometrists with all these new schools, or whether we have a shortage of optometrists. I don't see a shortage. I see, I tend to see a surplus. There will be, with uh, the Affordable Care Act, more demand for services, and it's the demand curve that will have to be looked at very carefully. Let me give you an example there. The, uh, the office uh, handling the insurance side of the Affordable Care Act has said that, there will, that when insurance is offered for children up to the age of 18, that it must afford eye care, including eyeglasses and whatever treatment is indicated for children up to the age of 18. That's a very major step forward. Now, we need more and more people in the profession who are going to take care of children. We need an expansion in the clinics of the schools and colleges of optometry, further emphasizing uh, children's eye care. Uh, after all, that's where our young students are going to get their training, their clinical training. As a matter of fact, I might go one step further and say the clinics of the schools and colleges of optometry, all of them need major expansion. So there are, they are very expensive to operate, but there are ways to do this. And with a broadened student base, you surely need a broadened clinical base in order to 
to educate and train the future optometrists. And, and that brings us to the $64,000 question uh, the, that we're debating now for the past five years about optometric board certification. So much has been written and debated about it. Uh, what are views on this, this particular subject? I have largely remained silent about it. Uh, in I delivered the convocation address at commencement at the Ohio State University this past June. And in my convocation address, I said that it was my personal opinion that the board certification effort by the national organization would prove to be an historic blunder. I say that for three reasons. The first is that the American Board of Optometry equated uh, incident to uh, admitting people to its examination three years of clinical practice with residency education. That is a fantasy, nothing less. A good residency education is an intensive, um, supervised clinical program to further advance the clinical skills of an existing recently graduated optometrist. To do that demeaned the standing of residency education. That was a fundamental mistake. The second issue that troubles me with regard to this whole problem is that it has split the profession. If there was a referendum conducted, a genuine referendum conducted, it is my opinion that most optometrists, 60 to 70% of the profession, would say you're splitting the profession. Don't do this. You're damaging unity. Don't do this. And the third issue that is of concern is the recent court case in the federal district court in California, which in effect said board certification means nothing. It means what you say it is. And it doesn't prevent uh, any other group from coming forth and saying board certification. You can call yourself that if you wish. Now, the fourth and most important point here is the fact that board certification in the health science, in the health services, generally means a recognition of advanced standing because of specialization. You're board certified in one area, another area, another area, and so on. So by taking board certification 
the way it has been taken nationally, we have stymied the effort to um, to establish uh, specialization in the profession because how are you going to recognize them now? Board certification can be for anybody. Right. The final point that I would make it's simply a punctuation point, is that the VA system, the military uh, health system, uh, the U.S. Public Health Service, the Indian Health Service, they won't recognize and don't recognize board certification as the profession has uh, projected it. I think it will prove to be, as I said at the Ohio State Convocation, will prove to be an historic blunder. Now, the bigger issue is not projecting it forward, but how do we creep out of it? Yeah. You know, Norman, people listening to this, I'm sure, are now standing up and applauding. Those of you that are driving your car... I don't hear anybody... Well, I'm telling you, uh, there's... A, <laughs> and, and those of you that are listening on podcast, don't take your hands off the steering wheel to, to, to start applauding now. But many, many people feel exactly the way you do. But if you were a leader, or you are a leader, but if you had the responsibility of AOA leadership today, what do you? what's the single greatest concern that you have? I... Uh proposed two years ago. Uh, it's not well known, but it's known among the leadership of the AOA. And by the way, I honor the AOA. It's the only really national organization that we have, and it's the organization that has done so much good over the years in so many ways. And I honor that. I've been a member of the AOA from day one of my career, and I would never think of giving that up. That does not mean that I cannot criticize things that it does, and I have over the years. Uh, I am concerned and expressed myself two years ago in a special memorandum to the board through Dory Carlson, who was then the president of the AOA, and to uh, Ron Hopping, who was then the president-elect, to create a commission, a commission, high level, bringing in people, if necessary, if necessary from the outside, in order to address problems uh, that we were facing, the profusion of new schools, the fact that our accreditation system through ACOE needs major upgrading, the fact that the clinical aspects of accreditation that were being proposed through the Council on Clinical Optometric Care were just beginning to take hold when the AOA abandoned that effort, I think it was a terrible mistake in 94 when the AOA discontinued the 
Council on Clinical Optometric Care. So I think there's a need for a new charter. I personally had gone to speak to people I know uh, in the U.S. Department of Education, which recognizes the extent of the charter of the uh, of all accrediting bodies. I think there was a major need to upgrade that. Uh, I still think there is. I also wanted to look at the extent of borrowing by the students. Uh, that whole issue of uh, student loans is ripe for discussion. Uh, there are some younger people now who feel, and I've heard this uh on a number of occasions, so I consider it important enough not to ignore that given the nature of reimbursements today, can they repay in the long term their student loans? Wait, Dr. Hafner, can I stop you for a second? I'm just curious, and I've got Paul here too. Do you have any sense of how much you actually paid to get your advanced degree? Do you have, have any sense about how much it was way back when? Well, uh, I, I know for a fact that I was able to work in the Catskill Mountains as a waiter during the summer, and the money I saved, I didn't play cards every night, so the money I saved just getting tips from 10 weeks in the Catskill Mountains was enough to pay my tuition at Columbia University uh, for, the, for the following year. Wow. Well, let me, let me answer your question, and it's a good question. Let me answer it this way. Tuition levels are not going to go down. They're going up. I never heard of an institution that reduced its tuition levels. They only add to it. The College of Medicine of New York University now has a tuition bill exclusive of living and books and maintenance of $60,000 per year. Wow. That's $240,000 for four years in a medical school. Wow. And NYU was not that far ahead of any other institution. Cornell is very much like this. Mount Sinai is very much like that. Uh, that's where we're heading. And how much can students borrow? Is it proper social policy to deny talented students the opportunity to go to college and to earn a degree, particularly if they're talented and able to, to gain admission? Do we deny them the opportunity because they don't have the resources? Well, the answer to that should be obvious. The answer is no. Well, how much can they borrow? At what level What level do we reach when somebody says, it's too much? We're at that level, folks. Absolutely. I mean, it's very, very hard for, for optometrists to go but there out. there are ways out of that, Paul. And there was a proposal made a number of years back which involve um, practitioners, uh, which was resoundly uh, ignored, 
not rejected, ignored, and uh, there is some measure of validity in it because medicine has tried a number of experiments in this regard, and so has the profession of dentistry. And the only two professions that we should look at with regard to how we structure ourselves is both medicine and dentistry uh, because they are the dominant uh, personnel in the field. Right, right. You know, um, well, one, one final question before we wind this up. Uh, oh, well, we... we and then you, you just got started? I was just started. <laughs> 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 What's happened since you left the presidency of SUNY? What are, what are you uh, doing for fun? What have you devoted I, your time and uh, energies to? Paul, you know that uh, I can't sit still for very long. I'm a member of five boards of directors of major organizations in New York City. I have headed uh, one of them uh, for a period of three years. One is a major mental health, mental retardation, developmental disabilities agency a $100 million agency a year. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. The Institute for Community Living uh, is its name. Uh, three years ago, I was elected to the board of the Orchestra of St. Luke's, uh, which is our major chamber orchestra in New York City. And we operate out of, uh, uh, out of Carnegie Hall. Uh, although we have our own offices and rehearsal studios, you know, I have always been interested in the arts. And uh, it's a delight to be with with those kinds of people interested in the arts and promoting the arts for people, for all people. Uh, so I've been kept busy. Uh, I'm doing some work for the New York Academy of Medicine, uh, I'm the only optometrist, regrettably, that uh, was accorded fellowship in the um, in the Academy of Medicine, 1984, uh, and uh, I serve on the school health committee and another committee of the academy, and I've tried to be helpful there. Well, let's not forget that you're still. We hope remain active in optometry, and be be a thorn in the side of those leaders that don't want to listen. I don't because... want to be a thorn <laughs> in anybody's side. What I want to do is point out that there are other ways to approach problems, and that not all the wisdom comes from a single source. A very very good thought. Okay, Ed, want to all finish right, up, so, please? So on that note. Dr. Hafner, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. And, you know, we're going to actually post uh, this podcast right up on OD Wire. And if you've never been there, Dr. Hafner, people will type in questions. They will come asking questions about this show. Well, and then you'll answer them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll but, pass them on to you, however. But, but you better answer them correctly. <laughs> I see. <laughs> or you will hear from me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dr. Hafner, thanks so much for being here today. Well, it's been a delight. Yes. And... Uh, Paul, uh, you've been a colleague of mine for so many years, and I honor the work that you've done in the profession. And, and, I, and I, I can't say how much I appreciate what you've done. And Thank with that, so we much. say 
so long. Be well.